On this episode of Inside Outside, we discussed ideas versus execution. We also sat down with Joni Cobb, president and CEO of Pipeline. All this and more on this episode of Inside Outside. Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the valley is even harder. Inside Outside is a podcast for inside access to startups outside the valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside. You're looking to startups outside of Silicon Valley. My name is Matt Boyd. I'm Brian Ardinger. And I'm Paul Jarrett. Episode 10, we're talking about ideas and execution. 10. 10. 10. 10 episodes in. This is like an anniversary. Double <laughs> yeah. I brought the champagne. Did you? Great. <laughs> no, early. I'm kidding. It's whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, talking about ideas and execution this week, what are your thoughts on... Um, starting a company, but you know, from the idea stage. So a lot of people put a lot of stock into their idea. What do you guys think about that? I think uh, people just kind of tend to get nervous of telling people and that kind of thing. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think the first thing is an idea is not a business. An idea is an idea and there's a real no mark. There's not really a, a market for yeah. ideas per se. It's the execution of that idea. So I think a lot of people get hung up on the fact, well, I've got a great idea. You know, you hear stories all the time like, oh, I thought of that a long time ago. I thought of Uber. I thought of Chipotle or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, well, did you do anything about that right. idea? Right. Uh, and so an idea is not a business. That's the first and foremost thing I think people have to remember. I remember a time when I was really scared to share all of my ideas, yeah. you know, whether it was uh, for uh, our current company or previous to that. And now I look back at how silly that was because, you know, yeah. it was almost like I was keeping this um, thing from growing. And so nowadays I'm much more open and I've had conversations with both of you on multiple topics and, and you can just see how sharing that idea. And here's the deal. Nobody gives a damn about your idea. <laughs> right. Like that's so true. Like yeah. Getting like an NDA signed or whatever it is, like nobody cares. And chances are somebody's probably thought of it or somebody's actively working on it. So I think it's more about getting your ass in gear. Yeah. And, you know, I think entrepreneurs, it's good to almost like operate with a healthy paranoia. And I think that's the, if you have an idea and you want to start to execute, that's the way to operate. Yeah. Um, especially in the beginning with it. So I remember when I was first getting into the, the startup world, I was probably 22 and had uh, a lot of ideas, was working on some stuff. And I remember this one very specific idea uh, that I would lose sleep over. And it wasn't because yep. um, I was actually working on the idea. It yep. was because like I was afraid somebody was going to steal this idea. <laughs> Been and, there. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's kind of naive. If I look back on it, I'm like, how dumb was I? Like, right. it's very naive to think that somebody in this world cares so much about your very specific vision to solve or the world's problems. General. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, it's like nobody's going to care enough to actually execute this thing in the exact way that you're going to execute it. So just stop worrying about it and go do it. Well, think of how many things out there, apps, software, et cetera, that are so similar, but they're just, you know, one percent different and they're they're really successful yeah you know for every burger king there's a mcdonald's and for every like kiss metrics there's a mixed panel right yeah so. exactly I mean, it's, it's one thing if you're building specific type of maybe hardware that you've literally figured out something that you're tinkering with in the garage or you've come up with the, the cure for cancer in a specific chemical compound right. that's a good point that's unique i mean truly right. unique right um but most 
ideas out there or business ideas are just that ideas and bar I, app <laughs> bar bar app <laughs> number it's a 75 app to share what bar you're at it was kind of funny. We were at that, one of those conferences, and uh, there were a lot of students around. Literally, that, every other app was a bar app. Every other. We app were thinking was a about bar starting a bar app accelerator. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it's like I have zero bar apps on my phone. By the way, do you guys? Have I any? don't have a single no. one. No. no. What's a bar? Has anybody ever said to you? Hold on, let me check my bar, my <laughs> blank, you know, parentheses bar app. No, <laughs> no, nobody Never. cares. Nope. I think one of the ways to think about it is, is stop thinking about your ideas and start thinking about problems. Yes. Yeah. And, yep. and that's a much better approach rather than, uh, you know, thinking about, well, I've got this great idea that I'm going to turn into a business at some point. Start really focusing on what problems are, am I going to solve um, and kind of go approach it from that perspective. I think like put something down on paper that you're actually going to go do instead of like, like coming up with all the features of this thing and all this, you know, the stuff, like just put a plan in place, like stop thinking about the, the idea and the features of the thing and, and what you're going to, what you're going to specifically build, but actually just go put something down on paper, three items that you're going to do today. And I think even beyond that, if you want to be specific, don't even put a plan as far as like the features in that go out and talk to people. Yeah, and actually share the idea, and actually start validating: is this a problem that people want solved? Yeah. So, at what point do you stop thinking about the idea and start executing? Right now, <laughs> just stop really? thinking about the idea, really, <laughs> and just go execute. I think so. Like, take the first step. Take the first step. Why not? What do you that, think? That's interesting. Uh, you know, I think people miss a lot of the basic things. Like as simple as like Googling it, look up the competition, <laughs> yeah, right. right? And then you do that and, and somebody might have a similar product um, or you haven't completely thought out or, you know, it's interesting how you, you said, Brian, think about the problem, um, not the product. Like my, in the last three years, my entire uh, thought process has changed to that. Like I think about the problem, not the actual like, you know, idea. Um, but before that, it was the product and thinking out its features, et cetera. So I've kind of like feel like I've transitioned. But um, I hear all the time, you know, at work, it's an idea. But at what what point do we stop talking about this idea and start executing it? And and I think that can apply to marketing, finance, yeah. tech, operations, et cetera. So you also, um, you also find people that you know Google they have an idea. They go mm-hmm. Google it and see one other person doing it or two other people, and it's like, oh, I can't do it now. Oh no! It's crush like, <laughs> exactly. It's like just because something exists in the world doesn't right. mean you can't do the right. do it better, ten x better, it or might whatever. So validate what you're what you're thinking. You can actually leverage it to your you know use it to your advantage. I'm curious at what my question was. At what point do you stop thinking about the idea and start executing? And you guys are saying as soon as possible. I I think so. I think that there's not much. Um, there's not much value in just kind of sitting around like thinking about doing something instead of just like going and like write one line of code. This week's episode is brought to you by Dillashaw LLC. We sat out with Bart to discuss fundraising and some things that you should consider. When it is finally time for a company to raise outside money from another investor, there's uh, this is a process that's talked about over and over. It's what you know. It's what you hear about when you hear companies going out and financing. I think it's important for companies to keep in mind that this is a a world in and of itself, 
And, um, you know, there's a lot of research out there and there's a lot of stuff that you can read. But fundamentally going into the financing, you want to make sure that your, your books are in order. Know that there is going to be an investor on the other end of this that's going to be asking you questions, that's going to be looking at your corporate records, that's going to be validating the ownership of your company, that's going to be tracing out the ownership of the IP, that's going to be looking at your employment agreements. Heading into that, you want to be prepared for those questions. You want to get all of your ducks in a row. And frankly, you want to be um, have all of those documents organized and, and ready to respond as soon as possible. Uh, and Naval, Naval from Angelus actually had a, I think this even equates to business plans and things like that. Naval, uh, founder of Angelus, actually just tweeted this, and it was a very prolific tweet in one sentence. He said, write your next business plan and code. Hmm. And I think that that, a lot of people could use that information mm-hmm. and that, that doesn't come down to financial modeling or that kind of, I think I still think that kind of stuff's valuable in setting, setting up your now setting up a budget for like art supplies. <laughs> I, I think that's ridiculous, but yeah. like marketing maybe and, and some high level things. Yep. Um, but when it comes down to like a business, like a 40 page, a lot of people think like I'm going to get into business and I'm going to, I'm going to create a 40 page business plan. Well, I think that's still idea. I think that you're not yep. really doing anything mm-hmm. of substance when you do things like that. Right. And I'm, I'm a big validation guy. I mean, I'm all into the lean startup from the standpoint of I think too many people uh, put plans together uh, without actually testing it against real people and understanding what the problems are and finding out, doing customer devalid- validation, customer interviews, really understanding what they're building and why they're building it yep. to, so that you don't waste time, resources, energy building something that you launch to the world and no one uses. We, we yeah, I, I kind of have a love hate relationship with lean startup and the fact that I think like validation is absolutely important. I think it mitigates your risk. I also look back on some of the greatest advancements in web technology since, you know, the early two thousands. And I, and I wonder if some of these companies like Facebook would exist if he actually took time to validate, like w- would, I don't think, Mark Zuckerberg validated anything when he built the first version of Facebook and even some of the like face mash and the before that. Um, I think that that's an idea. I, I would disagree from the standpoint that he may not have thought about it as this particular process, but I think he did start off with a MVP yeah, going to no, a particular I, I, I'm segment talk- of the, yeah. of the audience and then building the feature set from there based on what was, what people were desiring or needing and again, throwing out experiments. You can certainly throw a new feature or something into your audience. But what I'm saying is too many people don't take any feedback at all. And they build out this massive idea and all the features and everything else. And then they build it all and then they launch it and then realize, Oh, you know, none of nobody used that one feature that I built took six months to build. There is something very pure about closing off the outside world and, Mm -hmm. you know, building something which, which interests me, but you know, back I feel like I always mentally come back to this and it's like we were talking about this before we started the podcast, but what's the goal? Because, you know, I think a, a, a billion dollar, not, not even billion, you know, billions of dollars like the Facebook and the, the uh, Twitters, like those are very pure original concepts. Um, however, most startups are trying to shake up a, a specific industry, right? Like, I don't know, like those, they're just so much bigger and I get what you're saying. Matt. I'm mostly talking about like, I, I believe in the MVP wholeheartedly. I, I'm mostly I talking also think about that you, like you, how old are you? 30. Yeah. 30, 30. And you said you got started at 22. 
Yeah. So my you, first company. I, you probably execute a lot of those things because you have, you know, a decade of experience. Um, so you probably naturally execute a lot of those things and don't even think about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I have, um, when we first started Bulu box, I was in a position where I was fortunate enough to know the industry and, you know, the product that we were providing or coming up with solved for a very specific problem in that industry. I knew that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, going through the business plan was actually and writing one out, which was my first Mm -hmm. time ever. That was one of the most beneficial processes that, um, yeah, processes, processes, process, I, I, (laughs) um, that I ever went through because it made me map out everything. And I remember like joking, uh, with my co-founder, um, we got to a point and we actually used a software to help us write the business plan. And I was like, oh yeah, legal, like legal costs, you know, like thought of everything. And it was one of those things that I didn't think of. So I think for, you know, some people, um, it's, and and maybe it's better safe than sorry, but it does, it is a good drill to go through all those things. It's just how long, mind you, from concept to final business plan, final pitch deck, final everything. Um, it was like two weeks for us. Like that's all we did for two weeks. We slept in increments. So because of the paranoia. Let let me clarify my position a little bit. So I'm not arguing against lean startup. I'm arguing. Don't go back on what you're saying, man. (laughs) Don't punk out. I'm, um, (laughs) I'm essentially saying that I think a lot of people get caught up in the, the very specific validation, like customer validation interviews. You can also do the reverse and go the other way. They they spend way too much. And this is where ideas, this is where I think this lives in idea stage. Mm -hmm. Like, um, they spend people spend way too much time doing customer validation interviews yeah. in order to mitigate because yeah. they're scared and they want to mitigate so much risk that they don't actually ever do anything and make the leap into the execution side. I firmly believe in MVP um, as a you know that kind of thing, but just like the whole validation interview. Well, people think that you're going to get the answer from the customers. Yeah. Right. And what's the famous Henry Ford um, quote? Like, if I would have listened to everybody. I would have built a faster, built horse. faster horse. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And like, that's what I see a lot of times with mentoring and, and other things. Um, people come in and they say, well, I had this idea, but then I tested it and I listened to these people. And what they're saying is, you know, at, what I think the question or what they're trying to figure out is they're saying, um, Hey Paul, at what point do I find the answer to this? And you know, my response theoretically would be, well, they're not going to tell you the answer. You have to absorb what they're saying and change it. And you still have to, you know, drop the hammer, make Mm -hmm. the call and Mm -hmm. go. And I think that's where a lot of times people get, I think the hardest part is starting. Absolutely. Um, but flipping from idea to execution is really hard for everybody because they want a perfect format. The key is learning as you go. I mean, whatever amount of effort it takes to learn that next step and to minimize the amount of resources that you need to uh, execute on it that's the preferred path having said that you can go through lean startup you know bit by bit by bit and you still may not have a successful product it's not a guaranteed step by step so i I had a startup actually tell me that one day um they and i don't want to mention who it is but they said um so is this not that bar app (laughs) (laughs) yeah um they said so is it is this is this not like a a 
check box kind of thing where you just oh, you yeah. just check off the boxes and then you're successful. Did you just like, like put your hand on his shoulder and gaze <laughs> into his or her eyes and be like, oh, I am so well. My child. Start, let's start out my <laughs> child. Let us begin again. I, th- I think everybody is looking for that syllabus or for that workout plan. And if you think culturally about um, things like it, it's all a lot of times handed to us or follow these three easy steps or, you know, what have you. And um, you have to take all of that and just completely throw it out the window. And I find myself a lot of uh, myself a lot of times at our company um, kind of having that discussion of like, oh, you think we're going to hand you the syllabus and you just need to check the box. Well, here's the deal. Like you need to create the syllabus. We're going to grade you and probably multiple times throughout the semester, we're going to say it's wrong. Try again. Right? right. And that's that's the really painful part of the startup is putting blood, sweat and tears into this kind of plan and then having to throw it out and keep restarting and keep restarting. And, you know, that's where that whole grit thing, I mean, mm-hmm. risking grit, right? Like you're, you're making some assumptions, you're taking some risk, you're building out the plan. It's probably not now it's not going to be perfect and you know, getting beat up and having to reiterate that. And that's, that's okay. That's the process. Yeah, and that's can the, you imagine like five times into that? Like, yeah. you know, that's painful. That sucks. Mm-hmm. You feel like an idiot, but you have to keep going and, and fine tune everything. It's all about, I think taking action on your ideas rather than just thinking about it. So can, can we all uh, somewhat agree that um, an idea by itself is worth nothing. It's hard to go out and actually sell an idea on a marketplace. There's no place you can say, here, buy my idea for 50 bucks. It's all about the execution of the idea. That's a startup idea. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking the same thing. Let's go build that. Sounds better than a bar app. Make it happen. Go build something big. We sat on with Joni Cobb to talk more about her experience and Pipeline, an exclusive community of entrepreneurs and mentors building high growth companies in the Midwest. So in the early days of kind of my life, I don't think I actually knew I was interested in entrepreneurship. I think what I knew when I was in school and I went to college and then I went on to law school and then I got out of you know law school and was confused with what I wanted to do. I think what I knew is that I wanted to do something where I was rewarded for being very efficient and taking action, which, by the way, wasn't really practicing law because that you're rewarded for billable hours. <laughs> being efficient isn't necessarily a, a pro. But um, I knew I wanted to do something to kind of move the needle. I practiced law and did some things like that. And then I was home with my girls when they were little, and I started dabbling in what did I really want to do. I wasn't going to be moving to Washington, D.C. because I'd made some family decisions to, you know, got married, had kids, and things like that. And I was back in Kansas City, and um, I just started dabbling in my own work. And it was very entrepreneurial, but not in a high-growth kind of way. I was really more consulting and and, and doing that kind of work. And it was... um, really accidental, right? I was being, as in my experimenting of what I wanted to do, um, I was working for foundations and nonprofits and um, lovely, but I was getting a little kind of bored. I wanted to work on something cutting edge. And so I started researching what was going on with biosciences. Because in the early 2000s, the world was obsessed with biotech. And I thought it was really interesting that government, civic, business, everyone was talking about it. And I wanted to understand why. And, um, and so in the process of that, I also volunteered for an economic development board just in my community. And I just happened to be there one day for a lunch when um, the CEO of then KTEC was presenting the Kansas Economic Growth Act, which created the Bioscience Initiative in Kansas. 
And I was taking such copious notes because finally someone was talking about policy legislation around it. And I thought, oh, this will be fun. And I think I scared him to death because he was like, why is she taking such copious notes? So he came up to me afterwards. He thought maybe I was a reporter or he didn't know who I was. And he explained that they were getting ready to launch this whole initiative. And so um, when I explained that I was doing some strategic communication work and things, I didn't even really know what it was called. Um, they took a chance on me and help, had me help unveil that initiative for the state. So I started working with the governor's office and organizations. And so it was a lot of fun for me. And it just, I kind of stuck my thumb into a garden and a bunch of flowers bloomed in the sense that it really was in the wheelhouse of my skills and I didn't really even realize that I mean I intellectually understood the area because I'd been researching it and I actually started off as an engineering major let's not discuss that but I intellectually understood what was going on I was really fascinated with the policy piece of it I was really um, interested in the economic development side of it and I loved meeting people so I helped the state do that and um, in lots of different ways. And then um, after that had successfully borne out, um, the CEO of K-Tech brought a bunch of us in the room, some phenomenally smart people from in-house, former Coffin Foundation folks, folks from private industry. And I was just one of the people in the room. But the idea came up of what could they do next that nobody else was doing. And the state had already had incubators, accelerators, direct equity investment, angel groups. At that time, Kansas was really pouring a lot of money into this sector. And not just biotech, but just entrepreneurship, anything along the tech side. And so the concept came up of, well, what about a fellowship? I mean, the problem in the state is that we were losing really our leaders of these potentially high-growth companies um, to the coasts or, you know, other areas. So what are we doing to support them? And so this was a pilot and um, after I had to get talked into doing it, I said I would do it for three months, and we're in the ninth year. <laughs> um, and so I had a ton of support and got in a plane and flew around and did what any good lawyer does. I researched and talked to experts. And that's when I met Alec Dingy, the founder of the Venture Mentor Program at MIT, and Laura Kilcrease and Rob Adams and all sorts of folks in Austin, Texas, and eventually spent time in Silicon Valley and all sorts of places and realized there was nothing like this in the country. But those people were very intrigued that we were starting it, and we weren't running around trying to raise money for it. We just wanted an intellectual partnership on how to do it. And so um, because of my work in the life sciences, I'd spent a couple of years meeting everyone across the state in the kind of high-tech world. And so it was a little easier for me to kind of get out there, recruit entrepreneurs, recruit mentors, to get people really excited, and then bring in a lot of brilliant people who know everything there is to know about high-growth entrepreneurship to help them. And so it was an experiment the charter class, um, Toby Rush uh, from iVerify and uh, Tim Donnelly, uh, there's a ton of great people in that charter class called themselves the guinea pigs. They were the very first year, the 2007 class. And we experimented and tried things and it, and it worked well, but really uh, Pipeline has been so entrepreneurial. We've had nothing but support to constantly tweak and evolve and pivot our own business model. And, um, and we've done that. So after five years of being just in Kansas, We then, three years ago, three and a half years ago, scaled to a multi-state approach. Um, The Kauffman Foundation came in and said, years before we actually announced it, said, hey, this is one of our favorite programs in the country. 
it's in our backyard. How do we help you bring this out of just state lines and make it available to other entrepreneurs? What was going through your head? What was, what was the like emotion? Were there emotions? <laughs> to like, terror. <laughs> I was miserable. You are, you're getting me to talk about things I never talk about. I was miserable. No kidding. I thought I was totally out of my area of expertise for sure, right? And um, I kept thinking, God, we need a venture capitalist to run this, you know? I mean, and that I mean that I was very green, right? And and I just felt like I didn't have credibility with the entrepreneurs. I hadn't built a billion dollar company. Why would they, you know, sign up to something that I'm leading? Um, and how did you push that? <laughs> like, how does that even work? <laughs> well, I mean, the beauty of my insecurity and my misery and not have not feeling like I totally, you know, was in charge, so to speak. I mean, intellectually in charge of, of what was going on. But also the beauty in that is that I knew I wasn't. And so I immediately started creating a national advisory board. And this was not just a figurehead national advisory board. These people came in. They were lead presenters. They're still here today. Um, they're completely involved and love every minute of it. Um, and so because of that insecurity I had, you know, I immediately beefed up with, you know, the most brilliant people you can imagine. And how do you get in touch with those people? How do you, how do you build that network? Uh, stalking, as I, as I say. Um, but it's not as, we don't have to stalk quite as, in a scary way as we used to. Yeah. Um, but um, Joe Hadzimas tells this story. Joe Hadzima, who is our lead presenter during the module where we're here in um, Nebraska right now, He's been around for almost every year, and uh, he is a senior fellow at MIT. He has, I always joke around his terrible credentials. He's an MIT and Harvard graduate. He's won the top uh, award for alum contributions at MIT. He's a brilliant, wonderful man. And um, I really decided I wanted him involved, and I had already stalked Alec Dingy, <laughs> the founder of the MIT Venture Mentor Program. I stuck him in an event, and we ended up eating in a Greek restaurant for four hours. And um, I said, you know, I'd really like Joe to get involved based on the research I'd done about him. So Alec called Joe, and then Joe said, okay. And he said, you know, this girl's going to call you and just take the call. And then I found another person who knew him that was an alum, and so they made the call. And he was, like, intrigued, like, why in the world are all these people calling me about this, you know, gal from Kansas? Um, so by the time I—it took, like, three three-hour conversations, and then he came in. And then what happened, which is magical, is they met the entrepreneurs. And he saw that what we were doing was very different than other organizations, and he was really intrigued. And so he's come back every year. And then so from that, you know, Joe has brought in Bob Jones, and, you know, Laura Kilcrease from Austin has brought in folks. And so— I, I think I jokingly say there's stalking. There's definitely some stalking that has gone on. But the truth is, if there wasn't any real there, it would stop. You know, they'd come in one time and they wouldn't come back. The real beauty here is that the entrepreneurs and then the way we're approaching it yeah. are so interesting and genuine and heartfelt and important um, that they want to come back. Um, so that really builds the network. And we focus a ton on gratitude, and we focus a ton on helping our national advisors as much as they help us. 
And so that's the thing where people talk about pipeline becoming a family is that our national advisors are as invested with each other and the program and, and the other entrepreneurs. They all feel like it's they have ownership of it. Um, so a lot of people from the outside focus on maybe the current fellows or maybe a few select members that they call alums, right, and think, oh, that's kind of what it is. But when you get really close to it, you realize there's people from all over the country that are very invested in all of this um, and seeing it succeed. And that's really the addictive quality for entrepreneurs because who wouldn't want to be a part of that family? So take me back to the first ever class. <laughs> yeah, the guinea pigs. Yeah, how do you know you're doing the right thing? Like, what, like, <laughs> so, so again, I had myself armed, right, with experts in the front of the room. But what I found quickly that I was that I did have a skill at it was really watching the energy and a dynamic in a room and being able to know when it's time to adjust things and know when it's time to bring some new folks in. And is that a skill that you just have, in, like, in your bones? Yeah, I think something? so. That's awesome. I mean, you know, I think, I mean, I think you can develop things, but I think there's just certain gifts people have and certain gifts they don't have, you know, don't show me too many spreadsheets because that's not good. But, um, but I, you know, we got about, we have four modules a year and we had, we were about after the second, um, module and my lead expert that I was working with was said, well, you know, you've got a handful of these entrepreneurs over here that really are a lot in a lot different stage. Um, cause we always have a portfolio of very many different stages. And they're, you know, they've got a lot more significant revenue. They're dealing with, you know, dealing with managing teams. And, you know, then you got these people over here who are life science. They're pre-revenue. You know, they'll be pre-revenue forever, <laughs> you know. And, um, you know, so they're just, well, they're really different. And, you know, I, you know, I think if they, if they're not really getting how to really dig in here and learn how to scale or whatever, they're probably just not going to get it. And, you know, I was like, you know, we're only halfway through our very first year of pipeline. Why would we just like write them off and start again next year? That we just not going to do this. So I decided to do a half year review. Has made it up, and sat in a you know one on one and went and talked to everybody in the program. And so the ones that specifically were in that camp of kind of further along or whatever, I really had some frank conversations with them about like you know are you serious like. Do you really want to, you know, just a really Absolutely. blunt conversation. And it wasn't that they weren't doing they were doing anything wrong. It really wasn't. It's just that I don't think that there had been an opportunity to really be challenged. And because some of the people that come through pipeline is to this day are often the poster children in their communities for what success looks like. But they still haven't built that big, giant company, right? So in order to really um, prosper, they've got to come into a room and say, oh, I don't have it figured out. And it's a vulnerable moment when they've been held up as, you know, really successful poster children in their community. So we had this conversation, and I, I made kind of my, my – I was kind of trying to gauge how much do they really want to be pitched. And so then I went and found a guy um, in Chicago. His name's Tom Churchwell. He's notorious. He comes in and he rolls up his sleeves and he does this big Harvard Business School intimidation factor on him. him. And I actually put those entrepreneurs in a separate room. And he did this whole challenging exercise with them, uh, being really blunt and... um, challenging all their assumptions and said, you know, this 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 program, this organization is about getting you to like, you know, 255 or a million, you're not even close. It was really direct. And I came by and it was one of those doors, you know, that have the like skinny little piece of glass. 
And I never separate the classes, so this was really difficult for me. And I kept walking by, and I looked in, and I saw Toby and Tim and Deb Zillies and all these people. And I looked at Toby, and he had his hands on his temples. And he was just rubbing them in circles, you know. And I thought, oh, wow, whatever's going on in that room is um, is, is killing some brain cells or I don't know what, you know, m- multiplying brain cells. I'm not sure how that works. But in any event, um, it really was a, a changing point and for so many people. And I think, like Toby would say, you know, that was the year that he figured out you know, around his business model for rush tracking, you really needed to create something of scale. And he really worked hard on that. And with the help of folks in Pipeline and, and I'm sure others, but he really buckled down and created Visible Edge. Visible Edge is what ex- eventually sold um, to the private equity group, which then he spun out and then became, you know, then he started iVerify. So, um, and, you know, there's many examples of that, but that's just like a great one where you talk about someone that came in and, you know, I just wanted to tweak the model in real time that first year and not just like give up and say, oh, okay, we, you know, that, that particular format didn't work so well. I didn't want to give up on anybody. Yeah. So, so tell me about that. Like you had mentioned, do you, so some entrepreneurs don't make it through. Yeah, you're right about how, that. How do you deal with that? Well, okay. So the important thing to remember about pipeline is that pipeline, the, the theory behind pipeline is that there is a subset of entrepreneurs that it makes sense to focus such extraordinary resources on because they have, uh, they're the type of entrepreneur that have a exponential impact on that economy, right? Because I mean, a lot of people would say, well, hi, why can't you know? Why can't you have 200 people a year in pipeline? Well, then it becomes executive education, or why can't you do it for three months? Well, then it's an accelerator. Our thesis is a very different thesis, which is once entrepreneurs have gone through all those things and they look like they really could become that really next big company, there's something to be said about focusing energies on a really select number of people. And hopefully they'll do it with this company, but lots of times nobody really loves that company. That's why we don't accept companies to programs. Where our pipeline, you're an entrepreneur who's accepted as a fellow. Your company is not accepted. And frequently people abandon them or, you know, start over or sell it real fast, you know, and then go start something new once they've learned their lessons. And so because of that, because of such extraordinary resources where people have donated money and we've raised money, all for them to sit in that chair, there's a lot of pressure there to produce. So you have to sign an agreement that you will not miss a day of a module because how much money and effort has gone into flying people from all over to work and also how much value you have with your peers. If you're not there, you're not giving that value back, right? So if you miss a module, you can't continue on. So we've had some folks, you know, because of that. Or sometimes there's just not a right fit. You'll find someone, you, they think this is really what they want, and then they figure out pretty quickly that what they really need is maybe more of a consulting model or something like that. It hasn't happened a lot, but I think the entrepreneurs in general really respect to the organization because we have standards around it. There, it means something when you make it past the finish line. And, you know, our own members, um, which I, I always say some people call alums, but they never leave and they're very involved. So um, they are members. You know, they, they have a pretty low tolerance when they'll hear from any fellow that, you know, calls them and says, oh, gee, I'm going to call Joni because, boy, looks like I might be able to close this deal. And, you know, it's really important to the company. And they'll go, oh, yeah, you know, we've all been there. And there's ways around this. It's time to show leadership and figure it out. And they have no tolerance for it. So, um, and, you know, it, Jason Taji, who is our 2009 Innovator of the Year, who sold his company, Farm Technology, and now has Farm Mobile, 
Um, you know, he said when he went through the year, it was so uh, instructive for him personally to have to tell his team how to prepare his team for when he was in a module and how to prepare people to lead. Um, he said, because, you know, they were completely capable of doing it. Um, but if I hadn't been forced to do that because of my participation in a module, and don't get me wrong, they can make a phone call here and there, but they have to really dig in. Um, he said that was actually uh, an essential skill for him in, in building the rest of the company. That's it for this episode. Special thanks to Joni Cobb for taking time to tell her story. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at the IO Podcast. Music for this podcast is brought to you by bensound.com. Until next time, go build something big.